you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 35 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, last week we took a look back at the Eileen Flynn case from the 1980s. Eileen Flynn, as everybody will recall, our listeners will recall, was an Irish history teacher at the Holy Faith Convent in New Ross, County Wexford. She was dismissed from her position because she got into a relationship with a, a married man locally, had a baby with him. Um, and, you know, it led to all sorts of decision-making that is just bizarre by modern-day standards. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's hard, hard to imagine the, the world of, uh, of, of, of that these days. I yeah, mean, it's, 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 it really is. The, the past is a foreign country. And I know um, we were delighted to be joined by Dr. Donald Coffey from Maynooth University, who did a brilliant job talking us through all of that. I think that was a really, really interesting episode and an important episode, dare I say it. Okay, well, today we are going to be joined by one of the country's best-known criminal barristers. Actually, indeed, one of our best-known barristers, I'd say. I mean, criminal barristers are generally better known anyway than than your normal commoner gardener uh, barristers. Uh, And that, of course, is Michael O'Higgins, Senior Counsel. Michael has acted in some of our most high-profile criminal trials, But before entering the law library, he was a celebrated journalist, and I'm going to ask him all about that. Uh, And he's also a man who turns his hand to writing novels as well and short stories and fiction. So this is going to be a fascinating interview. Are you looking forward to that, Mark? I certainly am. Okay, well, first to some cases from Decisis that you have identified. The first one today is a personal injuries case, and this is where a hotel owner delayed in joining architects to a trip and fall proceedings. In this case, uh, called Thompson and Thompson and Frank Colgan Investment Co. Limited, it's a decision of Mr. Justice Anthony Barr. Uh, the personal injuries action had been issued against the hotel. The hotel issued a third-party notice. You might have to explain that for our listeners against an architect. However, the art- architects uh, applied to have the third-party notice set aside, saying, eh, "Too late. You should have joined us earlier." So, as you said, a this is a personal injuries action uh, against a hotel. And a third party notice is where you say that you are not the only uh, defendant uh, who is liable. You are entitled to join another party for the purpose of what they call indemnity or contribution, where they actually either pay the full amount of damage or they contribute towards the damages that you have to pay. But the rule is that you are supposed to join the third party as soon as reasonably possible. I think those are the exact words in the rule. Um, in this case, uh, what happened was that they they did what you need to do in a professional negligence action. They got a, an architect to write a report to, uh, concerning the conduct of the architect in this case. So they retained him in September 2020. He furnished his opinion in December 2020, so within three months. Council then drafted papers very quickly by the 8th of December 2020. But unfortunately, the third party notice or the motion to join the third party was not issued until October 2021, which is a good 10 months later. And on those grounds, the architects, once they were joined, sought to set the third party notice aside and that order was granted by the High Court. Mr Justice Barr said no, too late. Too late. Wow, Okay. All right, the second case today concerns a European arrest warrant 
and whether the respondent in this case, who was a Polish national, should have been notified of his criminal hearing in Poland. This is the case of the Minister for Justice against Kluska, I think it is, um, and it's a decision of Ms Justice Siobhan Stack. Uh, in this case, the judge held that while there was uncertainty about the respondent's address, where was he actually living, the, the individual himself was aware that he had criminal proceedings that were going to come up in Poland. And one one of the issues that very often arises in European arrest warrant cases, so the European arrest warrant is effectively the form of extradition that arises within the European Union. <clears throat> and one of the issues that often arises, particularly in these civil law jurisdictions, is where there have been hear- hearings in absentia. Uh, that's quite rare in Ireland, but it seems to be not uncommon in other countries. But it happened what, in the Enoch Burke case, didn't it? it no, it wasn't a criminal case. <laughs> Let me just add very quickly. But he, he was outside the room, wasn't he, while this case was being heard? I think he, we may be coming back to that. <laughs> yes. The, um, but in, in any event, the, the one of the requirements uh, that was that he, he give his address to the Polish authorities. They served him with notice of the proceedings to that address and he said he didn't hear about them and the court held that, well, he, he having given that address, if he didn't collect his post from that address, that was his responsibility and not that. Okay, so he couldn't get away with it on that exactly, technicality. Yeah. Okay, finally to a landlord and tenant case where the landlord was refusing to accept a HAP payment. That's the housing assistance payment, I think, that's provided by various local authorities throughout the country. This is the case of Fitzpatrick, sorry, I beg your pardon, Residential Tenants versus the Residential Tenancies Board, a decision of Mr. Justice Simons. The landlord in this case sought to recover possession of residential property from a tenant uh, and issued a notice of termination. The tenant challenged this but the RTB held that the termination notice was valid. That's right. So, yeah, ex- exactly. So when, when there's a challenge to a notice of termination in residential tenancies, that goes before the Residential Tenancies Board. And in this case, as you said, they held that the notice of termination was valid. This was then appealed to the High Court. And in the High Court, the tenant then argued that the landlord had ad- acted unlawfully in refusing the HAP payment, the housing assistance payment, and basically, this was argument was refused by the High Court on two grounds. First of all, they didn't argue the HAP payment issue before the RTB, the Residential Tenancies Board. And secondly, the issue concerning the HAP payment hadn't arisen until after the valid notice of termination was issued. So basically, the tenant was trying to re- rely on an issue that had arisen after he had been his tenancy had been validly terminated. Okay, Mark. Well, thank you for that. Three very interesting cases there. And we're going to be back very shortly with Senior Counsel Michael O'Higgins. Silence in the Fifth Court. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio one of our best-known criminal barristers, nay, one of our best-known barristers, Michael O'Higgins. As I said to Luigi Ray a couple of weeks ago, anybody who picks up a paper will have read your name many, many times, Michael. You've been in some of the most high-profile criminal cases in the last decade, two decades. And we're going to talk about those, but we also want to talk about this wonderful past you had in the world of journalism back in the good old days in the 80s with Hot Press. First of all, can I say you're very welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. You're currently involved in the Stardust Tribunal, is that correct? Yeah, Stardust Inquest, yeah. We're on week three or four of it now. We're just, we've got through the formalities and we're getting to witnesses who are very germane to events as they unfolded on the night, so it's getting very interesting. Okay, and does that mean you've stepped out of the criminal courts for a little while? Yes, it uh, does. I'll be down there more or less uh, full-time for the next four four months anyway, I think. Okay, 
I've seen you in judicial review cases. You've been in cases that I have been in, uh, etc. So you've always kind of had a civil practice as well as your criminal practice. But people will know you best as a criminal barrister. I used to do a very steady trickle of it that occasionally threatened to become more than a trickle, but never ultimately went the way. I did plenty of uh, defamation cases and, and indeed quite a few that ran the distance to juries and that and also false imprisonments and all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I got my fair share of it, certainly. Okay, well, we're going to come back to, to the criminal law in a minute, but I want to go way back. Before you entered the law library, you were part of the fourth estate, isn't that correct? And you were a journalist for many years. I was a journalist, yes. When I started the inns, uh, I, I was working as a journalist. I worked in a, as a journalist in Hot Press magazine. Yes. And I worked in McGill magazine. And I freelanced for all the national titles and did bits and pieces for them. Yeah. Okay. Now, there were two very exciting publications back in the 80s. I mean, this was kind of, you know, this is cutting edge stuff, Michael. So let's let's go to McGill to start with. I didn't know about the McGill. Vincent Brown, the great Vincent Brown? Yes, Vincent uh, launched the magazine and had a succession of really good editors. Colm Tobin and John Waters, Fintan O'Toole, Brian Trench. Period, I was there. And, you know, it was an extraordinary magazine. Yes. I mean, now... And even long before now, the newspapers started to replicate what they were doing. But McGill would give 10,000 words to a particular Yeah, massive in-depth investigative stories. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it was a sort of a left-wing type publication, but um, there were some uh, enormous talents working on it. People like Gene Kerrigan and Colm Tobin and John Waters and... uh, Eamon Dunphy used to write very uh, yes. accurate pieces for it. And it was a place, to be honest, you would have worked for nothing. Oh, I uh, believe it. Just Absolutely. In there, the atmosphere was just extraordinary. So what were you? Were you a general reporter? Were you set I, I was stories? actually a kind of, a, I didn't have the, the sort of talents that the likes of Gene Kerrigan would have had who could, you know, write a story up about anything. You know, you could send him out on a day going around uh, the hustings with Desi O'Malley, and he would come up with like 3,000 words of just... Wonderful stuff. Wonderful. I mean, I would have been looking at a blank page. So to earn my keep, I had to actually generate material more than writing. So I used to do a lot of crime stuff. I remember both, both reading... Both in the South and in, in Belfast and, and its environs. I remember reading um, in, in relation to Vincent Brown that he used to have editorial meetings once a month to plot the magazine. And somebody was assigned every month to try and figure out how Charlie Hoy had made his money. Do you recall those? Yes. Uh, Vincent, when I was there, was publisher because he was editor of the Tribune. And he used to descend uh, uh, sometimes to the editorial meetings or sometimes for the meeting that would occur when the magazine came out. And... Uh, Charlie Hawhey's wealth was one that was trotted out, but he was very eccentric, as you know, and very mercurial. And uh, we would get all sorts of edicts, uh, including the first one was no writing. Uh, and we were uh, we were urged <laughs> to read the Telegraph, which had this very telegraphic form of reporting and to stick to facts. And he was sick of people's opinions, didn't want anyone's opinions. Wow, okay. So you also mentioned that you worked with Hot Press. And... You are responsible and you were very modest when you compared yourself to some of the wonderful journalists who did write for McGill and who were populated the Dublin papers and the Dublin broadsheets in those days. But you wrote some very famous articles for Hot Press and one in particular was an interview with Charles Hawhey, the, the aforementioned Charles Well, that was actually Waters. Waters did the Hawhey. Okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Was it Bertie Ahern? Who did you, who I did did Bertie you do? Ahern, yeah. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah. 
Will you tell us about that? And that was Bertie when he was in the early days, wasn't it? Yes, he was. Uh, he was coming through the ranks. I think he was Minister for Labour at the time, and he was garnering that reputation where there's a touch of every man. He was a person to bring, if you had a dispute, you know, a certain type of barrister who can settle cases. Yes. Uh, Bertie ha- was always very good at getting people The gift to, of conciliation. Uh, yeah. He, he had that. And at that stage, he was still very much wearing the anoraks and he was on the rise at that time. But he was a coming man, wasn't he? Oh, there was no doubt about that, yeah. Yeah, okay. And in terms of like hot press, you had great freedom when you wrote a piece. I mean, you weren't constrained, like let's say the broadsheets would have been, which were traditionally maybe conservative in terms of the approach that took. Niall Stokes, he'd kind of give you free reign, wouldn't he? Let you write about whatever you wanted to write about. Well, I don't know if that's quite accurate. I mean, one of the things was the political interview. And um, I mean, again, it was a sort of a trendy kind of left-wing type, soft left-wing type politics. And the political interview, I got to do quite a few of those. You know, that was one of the best gigs that was going on the magazine. But Niall would talk you through it. And, you know, there were always some fairly excruciating questions that you were required to ask. To ask, yeah. <laughs> okay, the awkward and, question. Uh, well, I mean, Niall's view was, if you asked a, a politician about, you know, what's your view on contraception, what's your view on uh, homosexuality, as it was referred to at the time, you would get a bland response. So you would never ask what 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 was your view on homosexuality. You would ask if your son came home and told you. Did you was, do the Ben Briscoe interview? Then? I didn't do that one, okay, but right. that was that, that was one that was the springs to one, mind, yeah. and uh, he walked off the set. Yeah, um, but you would always they would always be personalised. And for instance, I remember interviewing Martin McGuinness, and it's kind of see it's just a, a, an indication of how much Ireland has changed, but. Back in those days, the issues were you know, contraception, actually getting contraceptives, and the legalization of gay relationships. Or, I mean, they all now they actually seem sort of so prehistoric almost, but they were the burning issues of the day. But I had to ask Martin McGuinness, not not his view on contraception, but whether he used Jurex. Wow! <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> response was <laughs> not while I was in Port Leash <laughs> <laughs> a good answer well but, but there you, you go you know you, you had to you had to ask those questions and uh, but having you know I remember the same Martin McGuinness interview but the niceties of it probably escaped me but uh, he had given an answer about the Don Tidy kidnap and when he was running for president so this is mid 80s but 83, 84 yeah, Don Tidy yeah. yeah when he was well it was just post that yeah it was actually that was the time but when he was running for president they lifted something from the interview which contradicted what he was saying now 25, 30 years on and it was a sort of it was an awkward moment for him yes yeah. but it must have been you know to see your your past life re-emerge Michael you know what I mean a piece of work from the 80s suddenly been relevant Well, again. journalism, was you know, 2011, it's, 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 it's so ephemeral. And, you know, I suppose the fact that it did crop up, yeah. it, was, it, was, yeah, it was a moment, yeah. Am I right in recalling, and I, I, I appreciate I've got some of these wrong, but did you do an interview with the general? Oh, I did several interviews with him, yeah. Martin Cahill. Yeah. Now, you've got to tell us more about that. Well, he, he was certainly a one-off, that's for sure. He was one of the first, I suppose... Super criminals, but at the same time very different to the current breed. He did a lot of robberies, 
who didn't do drugs or certainly wasn't doing drugs at that time. I don't believe he ever did. But he, he made money. And unlike other criminals who made money, he didn't lose it in the bookies or he didn't spend it or squander it or drink it. He was very abstemious. And he bought a house in Cowper Downs, which was a very up-and-coming area at the time. And uh, again, he didn't exactly flaunt it because he, he had no very little social skills. I mean, he didn't interact with his neighbours or anything like that. But people were aware of him. And then for whatever reason, they decided that did this 24-hour surveillance on him it was one of these cracking down on crime. And okay. he sort of ridiculed it. With the Mickey Mouse outfit all, all and the that, yeah. I mean, he, hand he, over the face. He all got that arrested sort of stuff. on some public order offence. And when, when he came out, he was wearing the Mickey Mouse top and he pulled his pants down. And at that time, there were four Dutch paintings by Dutch masters, which he had stolen from the Bight Museum. And one of them was the letter writer by Vermeer. And Martin dropped his pants and the, and the Mickey Mouse outfit and started to sing, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. There and, you go. Uh, it captured the public He was a great man for taunting, wasn't he? I mean, famously up to the, the golf course in Stackstown where the guards used to yeah. play and he dug up the greens and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Now tell me, how do you go about interviewing him? Because, I mean, this is a serious publication you're writing for. You want to get something, you know. So, I mean, is he going to talk to you when he won't talk to other people? Like, is there value in an interview with him? Is he going to give you something? Are you going to explain the man better as a result of that, Michael? I'm just uh, curious well, he, to know what he, you went he, in to he do. He did, funnily enough. He, he did because... Uh, you know, first of all, it took an awful long time to get the interview. I mean, I made uses of myself and called endlessly to his house. And eventually he caved in. I was living up in a bedsit in Harrow's Cross at the time. And he came up to my bedsit at 10 o'clock and uh, came in. I think he left about three in the morning. And uh, then he would come The two of you in the bedsit? Yeah. To come up about over about six or eight weeks then, he would come up and spend three, four, five, six hours. So you formed a, a, a friendship, I suppose, well, a relationship would, of sorts. It would have anyway. been a friendship, but I was very interested. And, you know, I was a better listener in those days than I am now. And he wanted to talk. And, uh, you know, it was very, very interesting. And it was a uh, really good copy. And he, he was the person at that time everyone wanted to interview. So... It was a very interesting experience. And how much of that kind of interview was kind of was on the record, or would you all spend hours? So that it was all. I'd say all of it. I mean, hmm. maybe ninety percent of it. And would he? T- how frank was he about his his career as a criminal? I mean, was he was he I think, cagey? I or? think he. I think he was frank. Hmm. About it, yeah. I mean, it was. It's hard now because we've moved on. It was in retrospect, it was slightly more innocent times. You know. Was he likable, Michael? Uh, Yes, he was. Endearing, old-fashioned, decent criminal. Well, you know, it's like everybody else. I mean, he did some terrible things. You know, he he nailed a man to the ground because he did believe this person had crossed him. I mean, he could be guilty of terrible acts of sadism. Blew up the car of a witness, I think. was that Forensic scientist, uh, Dr. O'Donovan. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you know, it was not sophisticated. I mean, his attack on the forensic science laboratory was based on some idea that they were fitting up evidence, uh, which which they weren't, to be absolutely clear. They were absolutely not. But even if evidence had been or was being fitted up in some sort of way, it would all have happened long before it got to the laboratory because, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fixed before it gets near the laboratory. And again, I'm not saying that happened, but that was his gripe. But he wasn't really clued in enough to realise that 
if there was a problem, it it existed long before it got to the forensic science laboratory. Yes. Uh, he just didn't have that level so of sophistication. Un- unfortunate for the, the poor people working in, in that area. So, Michael, we're going to get to your legal career, and I'm, I know I'm dancing around the houses, but you, you had a stint in RTE prior to that. And I was always very curious about something you said to me years ago, if I can recall correctly. You used to do the night shift, didn't you? Write the news, you know, the, the night train, the midnight hour. And I remember asking you, you know, the glam of television, the glam of radio. And you told me that you kind of stayed away from that because you very much wanted to be a barrister and you didn't want your head turned by kind of the glam of, of media and broadcasting. That's is, very is that, true. Is that a fair yeah, recollection? Well, if I might explain it to you like this, I was doing all right with the journals and then I got my legal qualification and I was coming to them. And I couldn't have survived at the bar without doing the night shifts in RT and the Friday and Saturday night it was 11 at night, 7 in the morning. Just would have been a non-starter. But the work I did, whatever it was, and I was fortunate it happened to be in RT, it had to be as unattractive as possible because if it became in any way attractive, you'd sort of say, oh, well, I mean, I'm down trying the bar and all the rest of it. It had to be completely and utterly awful. Um, wow. because and it couldn't be an alternative because that was the way to incentivize that if you were down at the bar, you really had to try hard. This wasn't just something you were trying out to see how it went. And I got offered better shifts in RTE uh, and I turned them down because I felt, no, it had to be not an attractive alternative. You really wanted to make it as a barrister. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I enjoyed the individual nights in RTE and I had really good... Uh, fun with the people I worked with but to come in after a week's work and work from 11 to 7 in the morning and then sleep all day and all the rest of it and RT were so wonderful to me and in the summertime or Christmas time I could write my own shift and do as many shifts I did full time during those breaks but they gave me as many shifts as I wanted and I'm very indebted to Michael Good for doing it That's the great Michael Good So the law Okay, and Mark, do you want to come in here? Because I'm, I'm doing a lot of chatter about uh, journalism. But the law, so, so what was the appeal of the law, Michael? Well, I had uh, a very naive view of the world. And uh, I, I had a very romantic view of journalism and a, and a very romantic view of the law. And it was spurred on by all that, you know, this, this idea that, that doing justice and all that sort of thing. But it, it was actually... It wasn't. It wasn't. A, wasn't. It wasn't really. Um, I didn't really understand. And was that born of you know Rumpel of the Bailey and then sort of um, To Kill a Mockingbird, or was it? Uh, where, where, where did your romantic sort of? View I, I think it was more from? born of. I mean, at the time, you know, when I was in UCD and that, you know, the Nikki Kelly case was very prominent, and it got a lot of traction, and there were no doubt other cases and you know there was a dialogue which you'd never see anymore about you know that the the uh, elements of the state were repressive and all the rest of it and all of that had a very powerful effect on me and um, I had a very kind of one-dimensional view of things you know that I bought into a lot of that analysis not not just in terms of Nikki Kelly's particular case but that that was very much the way things were done. And do, do you mean that you thought that you could come in the sort of truth and kind of affect uh, change to the system using using the, the criminal law? Or? I don't think it was like that, uh, Mark. It's hard to articulate, but I think I had an idea, you know, that there was these bad guards who were fitting people up and all the rest of it. And that's not to say that on occasion such would not have occurred. 
But insofar as it may have occurred, that was very much an exception. And that when you actually settled down and looked at what was happening, it was likely that, you know, someone might be arrested and detained. They didn't wait for the solicitor. Or if the solicitor was a bit delayed, that was fine. And the time was used to perhaps get a person to engage in the interview, which they might not have engaged until such time as the solicitor arrived. And this was an unfair procedure. And um, you, you, when, you, when you actually began to understand what the whole process was, you were going in and fighting points that, no, it's really important, actually, you don't commence the uh, interview until the solicitor has arrived, and you'd argue that point out minutely and ultimately sometimes would be successful. The statement would be excluded. The case would collapse because that was the only evidence. But you would go home and maybe ask, is that justice? And uh, because maybe the person had unquestionably committed the offence, but you were in there, you'd argued some procedural point. But what you realised was that the point you had argued was an, actually an important point of principle. But in the individual case, sometimes the person who got the benefit of it mightn't be the most so worthwhile is, So person. is that justice? Let's get into philosophy here, Michael. Is yeah, it justice? That, that is a different question and one in which you could, I believe, very successfully do a series in a podcast. Because when people talk about justice, they talk like it's some tangible thing that could be identified like a fingerprint or, I mean, I often think by way of example, to take something that isn't a criminal case, if you were to walk down a corridor and there was a very big civil dispute and the court handed down its judgment and you saw the two legal teams in the corners with their judgment and going through it, the persons who won the case, that's justice. If there's an appeal, the appeal court might reverse it and if you went down the same corridor You'd have the same two teams, except justice has now moved to the other side. And occasionally, points get a third hearing, maybe a point of law of importance or something like that, in which case the ultimate Supreme Court might give a little bit to everybody, in which case each side has got something and are probably hugely discontented because they've spent an enormous amount of time and money. And uh, which side got justice? Whatever the last pronouncement of the court was, that is justice. But if you're not on the right side of that, you're not probably not going to feel you did get much justice. So so forget about justice to a certain extent. And we're talking about, you go down to the courts, it's about law, isn't it? And it's about going down and, you know, trying to ensure that you're on the right side of the law. And it's, it's, well, it's a I, tactical I think, game. I think is that what you're saying to me? I think at this stage, I'm doing it so long now. You know, I'm, I'm institutionalised or conditioned to some extent. And when I look at a criminal case, I divide up what is the evidence that connects the accused from appearing for the defence to the offence charged. And then you look at whether all of those individual pieces, if the evidence has been appropriately gathered, are kind of be excluded. And then you look at the points that are incriminatory and... On the basis, you have to put your best foot forward for your client. You're looking at, well, how can that particular piece of evidence, which is helpful, how can you get the best out of that piece of evidence? Or alternatively, if there's a piece of evidence that's unhelpful, is there a way that the effect of it can be reduced or dampened? So that is the process. It's a very engaging process. It's I find it a very interesting process. Um I find in an in an awful lot of cases what one what what my sense of what the justice of the case in most cases it pans out what my assessment of what it is. But 
I'm quite sure in cases if there are other people, parties who are uh, spectators or involved or had some skin in the game, they might have a completely different view. So justice is actually a very subjective thing, but it is sold as if the, it is an objective reality, which in my experience is not. And can I ask, I mean, in terms of since you started in practice, I mean, it, it strikes me when you're talking about the, the, the way interviews used to be conducted, obviously there's a big change in that now pretty much every interview room has cameras in it. Um, solicitors can sit in interviews and also in courtrooms obviously there's now digital audio recording um, so there's a very accurate account of what took place both in the interview and in the court. Has that made a huge difference to legal practice in your experience? I mean a, a, a court hearing is conducted in a very different way now than they were sort of you know 20 odd well, years ago. I mean as far as interviews are concerned before the uh, videos or the DVDs recorded the interviews you would have trial within the trial and admissibility of evidence, in which case there'd be days spent putting into guards that inducements had been offered or threats had been made. And at the end, the judge would rule on it. That whole industry, if that's the right word for it, vanished overnight. 98% of that was just gone. In terms of how cases have changed, I mean, when I started in the 70s, there were 300 barristers. When I started in the late 80s, it was 900. That went to two and a half thousand. When I started, I think there were 10 high court judges. There's now about 40. There was an annual law report, one volume for all the cases. Now there are four. And it isn't just the Irish reports. There are so many spin-offs now. So it's got much more complicated. And with technology and CCTV, there's, you know, we're getting disclosed in cases now thousands of hours of CCTV. Uh, and, and electronic messages and all that kind of thing that, that you so, control through. I mean, you know, a mobile phone now, if you actually hard copy print what's on the hard drive, it's 100,000 pages. So either something's going to have to be done about that. But uh, the cases have got much more complicated. But I don't think you can... It's not a coincidence that when you get four times as many lawyers, you get four times as many reported cases. And... The whole thing has now just got much more complicated and much less straightforward. And from that point of view, cases are getting longer and the issues are getting more complicated. And I don't know what way that's going to go. Sometimes one senses a great frustration on the bench that matters that are less complicated are being made more complicated. People would say, no, this is an issue and we have to tease it out. But to take one example, in criminal trials now, sometimes an, a, a, an admissibility on CCTV could take two weeks and it might involve calling 100 witnesses which should have to be replicated during the trial. And this is because an argument has grown up about whether there's a privacy issue if you're walking down the road and the guards go to every second shop and get the CCTV, they can piece your life together. And they couldn't do it themselves and most of these systems are unregulated and they go far beyond what the data protection laws provide. And um, there's a whole grey area. Now, there's a big judgment needs to be done on that. And I don't understand why the DPP didn't go to the Court of Appeal and say, look, we're, we're wasting weeks repeating mm. the argument endlessly. This is a test case. Give us your answer. And then the trial courts can know where the parameters are. That, that hasn't been done for reasons which aren't obvious to me. And that's, that's an area where the thing could be speeded up. And then obviously there's the related issue that we touched on a couple of weeks ago with Luigi Ray and Darren Lawler, 
I mean, you know, as criminal cases have got more and more complicated and are lasting longer, we still have the issue that legal aid payments were, were reduced substantially in 2010, I think it was, by something like a third, effectively. Yeah. And certainly, and surrounding payments were reduced and they still haven't been brought up again. I mean, do you think this is, that is affecting the, the quantity and quality of available criminal barristers? There's no question about that, but it's a slow burn. I mean, the stage I was at in my career when those cuts came, I, I was I was at a stage in my life where I had a family to rear, a lot of financial commitments. So, you know, they had most of my generation at that time. There wasn't really any alternative. And it was a very deep recession, as you're aware. But you've not only had the 30% cuts, we've now had quite a lot of inflation. So the the value of what you're being paid now compared to 15 years ago is probably less than half. And, you know... When people are qualifying and deciding what areas they'll go into, if they form the view that the criminal law is a ghetto, which it was when I came in, uh, an awful lot of people are not going to get involved in it. And that will have a knock-on effect in terms of the quality of people who are attracted to it. And, you know, you can see the effects in the United Kingdom where they've completely dismantled the legal aid system. And from a country that had one of the best systems of justice, the quality goes down and down. And speaking of a ghetto, we also have the issue that when it went around the same sort of time, the criminal courts all moved upriver to the criminal courts of justice. And now it's very rare to see a criminal barrister in the forecourts. Do you think that has been a, a, a you know, you can now take the sort of longer view it has. Was there anything positive about that move from the criminal uh, point of were, view? Or? There were a lot mm. of positive things right. about it, I think. But, you see, the old people, older people will remember the good old times, but the people who've come in since 2010, they've no point of reference or point mm. of comparison, and they're bored by it, and very understandably. Yeah. And there is a good sense of, of uh, collegiality and a fair degree of camaraderie between the criminal bar, because we're all under that one roof, and there's what I would describe as a good crew of people down there. And I think we're a bit more solidified than we would have been up in the forecourts. So I think those have been positives. The big negative, though, is if you're a young person coming in, you could devil with a criminal practitioner in the forecourts and you could get other work. If you're in the fork, if you're in the CCJ, you're committed to crime. If you can't get your toe in the door, you're stuck. Michael, can I just go back to what you said when you came into the law library? You came in with a sort of romantic notion. Now, you've been at it, you've worked at the highest level, you've represented people in our leading criminal trials, you know, people that are very high profile and people out there would know them. After all these years, do you still have a romantic sense of law or where where is that romantic young fella that came in, idealistic young fella all those years ago? Are you still the same? Sounds no, to no, me the no, way you're talking about this. No, I think some of the romance is gone, but I regard what a barrister does, in particular a criminal barrister, as being an enormous privilege that you are actually allowed to ask these questions. And I would find it constantly and never-endingly stimulating. And, you know, a day would be like five minutes. But there's a lot of obligation. There's a lot of responsibility. It takes more time than is healthy. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. It takes more time than is healthy, and that's at the expense of other things. We don't have two lives. And, you know, we have obligations to discharge also to, you know, family time and all that. It eats into that. And there is a price to be paid for that. But, no, I still get 
there are certain cases that I do and I walk away from them and I have the same, if not more, level of wonder that I had when I came into the law library on the first day. Wow, lucky man. Now, as you said, we don't have two lives and you are very busy in your criminal practice. But you have found time to go back to the typewriter again in a different format to your journalism days. Fiction, you've written a a couple of books of award-winning short stories and you wrote a, a novel, a crime novel some years ago, Snapshots. So just tell us about that. Well, I had the ambition to write uh, fiction and I did write the novel. I did write a couple of short stories and, you know, they, they, they were noticed. And I found it as a good alternative to the bar. You need alternatives to the bar. And I found it a way of relaxing. I enjoyed it. It drove me mad as well, but I, I did enjoy it. But publishing is very hard to get books published. Yes. And uh, unlike if you go and do a, a case where anyone who's a lawyer would know if you're not a lawyer, there's a lot of work that if it, the case does not succeed, you are not paid. That's part of the reality. There's no problem. But if you write a book, you know, you could be giving 18 months away of your life. And the people who determine what books are to be published, you know, it's not that they have some special understanding or insight. You've only to walk into a bookshop and see there are a lot of very poor books that get published. So it's very frustrating from that point of view. Now, for me, no, because it's secondary. But for someone who wants to write full time, it's a very precarious business. Yes, absolutely. But you haven't been put off. I know there's a second novel in the offing. Oh, Am yeah. I right? No, no, I wouldn't be. Don't, wouldn't, don't give away I the plot be, line just yet, but yeah, there is no, one coming out. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be deterred by that. Yeah, yeah. And can I ask you a little bit about your process? You t- described it as relaxing. Is that something... Is it a way you unwind at the end of a long day or do you get up early in the morning and start writing? Is that a... It, it, at the end of the day, at that time, I mean, my, I used to be a, a night owl. I'm now more of a lark. Uh, and I used to I used to do a lot more writing than I do now. It's now more confined to holidays and stuff like that. But yeah, I would be very... I would be a disciplined person. And if I said I was going to do it, I would set the time aside and all that. But... And do you find it's a different part of your brain from, say, writing submissions, writing pleadings and speeches yes, and that we, kind of thing? You're sort of, you're, you're a little bit more free-flowing or, or in terms of w- w- the way you're able to write, you don't need to, to, to watch every word in the same way? Or I think the difference is when you have a case, you're confined to what the facts of the case as alleged are. And, you know, there might be an element of creativity as to how you're going to marshal those facts. But you're bound by those facts. That actually puts your imagination in a bit of a straitjacket. Sure. So when you go to write fiction, you know, the ability to process and reduce information into formats, which is what lawyers do, is a great asset. But because your imagination is so dulled, it's really hard. Yes. To actually it's very get different. beyond it's very that different. and to imagine something outside the parameters of what you've got. And that's part of the challenge. Michael, we're at that stage. This has been a fascinating interview. We've, we've gone on uh, much longer than we normally do because this has just been so interesting. But we're going to have to wrap it up. And I presume Mark asked you in advance the question we asked. Obviously, you have your own books, but are there any other legal books or movies or whatever that you would yeah, recommend to I people I was actually there. alerted to this, uh, not by Mark, but by, by somebody else. <laughs> the movie is very easy. My favorite legal movie of all time is a movie called Justice for All by Al Pacino. It's 1972, I think. Wow. And I saw it in 1975. I was 15. It blew me away. Uh, I watch it every five years. And apart from the big wide lapels and the huge hair, it hasn't dated at all. Justice for All. The beauty of the movie is it's all about the gray. 
you know, it's not some GA prosecuting a pedophile. It's not about some innocent person on death row. This is all grey, and it is a stunning movie. I couldn't recommend it. It's a I, serious ethical challenge to the lawyer, isn't it? See, where he's do you know the for movie? Some, I, I saw so it years and years yeah. ago. I think, it, again, as a teenager, it yeah. was a... Uh, does it, doesn't he, isn't he acting for somebody who he very strongly suspects is not as squeaky clean as he's presenting himself? Well, I think the ultimate rub in the thing was he had a judge who hated him and he hated the judge more than the judge hated him. And then the judge got accused of rape and he decided he would get Al Pacino to defend him on the basis everyone knew they hated each other. And if Al Pacino was defending him, therefore he must be innocent. But there are many, many subplots under that one. Definitely one I must look up. Have you got a book for us, Michael? Uh, I, I do, although I had to think very hard about that. It's funny you should mention George Carmen, but that was my favourite book because... It was by written, Dominic? Yeah, it was written by his son. A lot of people gave out about it and said he was very disloyal. I have to say, when I read the book, his affection for his father poured off the page, even though it was a very heavy warts and all profile. But what I loved about the book was he was massively insecure and he had a huge inferiority complex. Um, his mother was from Waterford. His father was uh, black and tan and the mother was incredibly domineering and he had all sorts of issues. He wasn't really accepted at the English bar. He's a bit of an outsider because, you know, the snobbery is even worse than it is here. And you put all those things together and he could still do a great place in court. I mean, it was phenomenal. Well, okay. Michael, this has been brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Michael O'Higgins, Senior Counsel, thank you so much for coming in thank and you being for having me a on. guest on The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can I say a huge thank you to our guest, Michael O'Higgins, Senior Counsel, who came in and talked to us about his fascinating career in the law, but also about his fascinating career in journalism. And, and the books and the novels. Mark, did you enjoy and, that? And, and the bed set and the chats with the general. Yes. I mean, I wondered did they get to play any records or, you know, when they were up there for all those those hours. Well, it was hot end. press, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, but um, uh, what a brilliant interview. What a brilliant I knew it was going to be good, but it was really, really good. OK, can I also say a big thank you to our producer, Cunnel O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios and to Alison for the wonderful job she has done in recording this show. Uh, and as always, if people have any comments, please get in touch. I won't say it anymore. I'm saying it ad nauseum. So that's it, folks. From me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.